The civil rights lawyer Michelle Alexander is one of the people who is waking us up to history we don't remember and structures most of us can't fathom intending to create. Mass incarceration and the school-to-prison pipeline, these are shorthand ways of talking about human wreckage decades on from policies that began during the Nixon administration in the wake of civil rights advances in the name of reestablishing order. Poor people of color were swept into the criminal justice system as war was waged on drug crimes, which were largely ignored when committed by middle or upper class whites. Michelle Alexander calls the punitive culture that has emerged the new Jim Crow. And she is making this visible in the name of a fierce hope and a conviction that across the differences in this land, we not only can but already are rising to the transformation to which it calls. The press of our daily lives can make it difficult to imagine alternatives and to commit ourselves to even small steps towards building a movement that might have some hope of being truly transformational. But all over the country right now, people are actually doing that work. In faith communities, in reentry centers, in schools, on campuses, on street corners, in barber shops today, people are asking questions that haven't been asked in a long time and saying, We don't want to live in a prison state. How are we going to go about building a movement that can birth something new? I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Michelle Alexander is an associate professor of law at Ohio State University. She published The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness in 2010, and it's gradually become a phenomenon, a source of national discussion and reflection. I'd love to hear, I don't see a lot of you talking about, you know, your childhood or where you grew up. And where where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Chicago, actually, mm-hmm. but we moved when I was very young. So um, lived out in the cornfields of Illinois when I was a young girl, not hmm. far from Kankakee in a very small community. And then we moved to California and I moved around the Bay Area, went to three different high schools and eventually graduated from a high school in Oregon, in Ashland, Oregon. Okay. So um, no real hometown. Yeah. And was was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? Well, you know, my mom's white and my dad was black. And when they married, it was still against the law in a number of states. And uh, my mother was actually disowned by her family when she chose to marry my father. And she was excommunicated from her Lutheran church. And so... So when was this? what, what, what decade so, are we talking So I guess that well, it was in the early 60s. Um, yeah, so, you know, I was raised with the understanding that faith and church are not synonymous. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I was raised with a lot of spirituality in our home, but we never joined a church as a family after that. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until I was much older as an adult that I found a church in Oakland, California that um, I began to attend regularly. Hmm. And you've written about kind of the earliest roots of your consciousness of this language and the notion of Jim Crow and you wrote that this was, for you as a kid in school, this was 
demoralizing to see pictures of that era and people who look like me sitting in the back of the bus. And that makes so much sense. And yet I feel like we don't hear many people talk about it that way, you know, about in- internalizing this history as children. Yeah, I hope that going forward we give a lot more thought to how we teach race and racial justice in our schools because, you know, I notice even with my own kids that it can be traumatizing um, to be sitting in a classroom and in honor of Martin Luther King Day be shown pictures and films depicting, you know, black people being demeaned and the whites only signs and, you know, um, crowds of angry white people screaming and spitting and hurtling objects at them. And at a young age, it can be difficult to process and to understand how we fit into that history. And I think it's important for people, young people, to be educated about um, the incredible courage and heroism of ordinary folks back then and today uh, yeah. as they struggle against injustice. Yes. And and I guess, you know, your book, The New Jim Crow, is you know, it's just extraordinary, and it's it's become a really important text. Um, and it strikes me also in the sweep of your work, you're talking about telling the whole truth, telling truths we haven't named. Um, there are shocking, terrible stories in there. And it seems to me that your passion has grown for how this this story of the whole truth also is a story of our capacity to change what needs changing. Yeah. That comes through to me as I see where you've been. Well, I'm glad to hear that comes through. I think, um, you know, for so, in so many ways, the whole process of writing this book and touring and speaking to a wide range of people, I've spoken in prisons, I've spoken in mm. churches, at judicial conferences, you know, interacting with a wide range of people who, you know, are all kind of slowly awakening to the reality of what we as a nation have done. You know, in this so-called era of colorblindness, we've managed to create this vast new system of racial and social control that has relegated tens of millions of people to a second-class status yet again. You know, we've done this thing as a nation. And, you know, I think for me, one of the reasons that I'm so have become so passionate about this issue is that I think in many ways how you respond to the crisis of mass incarceration in the United States is really a critical test for American democracy. Will this American experiment succeed (laughs) or fail? Um, You know, research has shown that the most punitive nations in the world are the most diverse. Um, Yes, and uh, that is such a fascinating thing that you draw forward. That the that yeah. the most punitive nations are more diverse, and the more the ones we look at and see those are more structurally compassionate, are more homogeneous. Exactly, and so there seems to be this aspect of our human nature yeah. um, to be punitive towards the other. And in the United States today, we have a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow segregation to overcome. And we're also a nation filled with people of all different faiths, (laughs) ethnicities, backgrounds. Uh, And I think, you know, the question that remains unanswered is, are we going to be capable 
of extending care, compassion, and concern across lines of race, of class, of religion, nationality? Or are we going to respond to those we label others uh, with pure punitiveness? And that's what happened, you know, with the birth of mass incarceration. And you've made the point also often that this statement that really first entered your imagination not that long ago, um, I suppose it was maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, but that that the war on drugs turned the clock back on racial progress. And that, that initially mm-hmm. for you was hyperbole and something to be dismissed, um, not really couldn't, couldn't reflect the complexity of reality. Yeah, well, you know, I was raised to believe that there had been extraordinary racial injustice in our history, but that we are on the right path. And we may have a long way to go, but we are on the right path, uh, headed you know, albeit too slowly, towards that promised land that Dr. King spoke of so eloquently. And in many ways, I think my own parents, being interracially married, felt they had to believe in that. They had to believe that by bringing mixed-race children into this world, that they were bringing them into a world where there was hope for their future. And so I, I was really raised on that narrative that we were overcoming. And so, you know, when I became a civil rights lawyer and was a baby civil rights lawyer just starting out, and I saw that sign stapled to a telephone pole saying, the drug war is the new Jim Crow, yeah, I thought that was hyperbole. I, you know, shook my head and said, yeah, you know, criminal justice system is racist in a lot of ways, but it doesn't help to make such absurd comparisons to Jim Crow. People will just think you're crazy. And then I hopped on the bus and headed to my new job as director of the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU in California. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really only through those years of representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color and attempting to assist people who had been released from prison as they faced just one unimaginable barrier after another, not just to their you know, so-called reentry, but to their basic survival um, after being released from prison, that I had my series of experiences that led to my own awakening that we hadn't you know, ended racial caste in America. We had just redesigned it. So here's some of the ways you talk about it that, for one thing, this fact that um, the rate of incarceration is not tied to the rate of crime. Right. There's no. There's not a correlation that crime went up, therefore more That's people right. are in prison, um, and that poor people of color are swept into the criminal justice system by the millions for drug crimes that go largely ignored when committed by middle or upper class whites, and that people then kind of enter this parallel universe, in which, as you say, they are stripped of the rights of the very rights that were won in the civil rights movement. That's right. You know, I think most people don't really appreciate the gravity 
of being convicted of a crime, particularly if you're African-American. You know, if you're white and you wind up with a criminal record, very few people will, you know, look at you and think criminal. (laughs) You may get away with not checking the box on employment applications or housing forms. But particularly for black folks and poor folks of color, once you're saddled with a criminal record, you are stripped of the very right supposedly won in the civil rights movement, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, the right to be free of legal discrimination, employment, housing, mm. access to you know, education, basic public benefits. Um, you really are relegated to a permanent second-class status. And as I began kind of doing work in poor communities of color that were you know, under siege in the drug war— My mind was blown over and over again by the fact that young kids were being arrested, um, locked up for the kinds of things that, you know, I and my white friends (laughs) um, and friends of color had done in our youth and just treated as part of our youthful childhood. We we never even imagined. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that we would be stripped of rights for the rest of our lives if we had been caught with some weed or um, be a victim of my crime. And, you know, I went to college at Vanderbilt University. And, you know, when I was there in college, you would go to fraternity parties and there would be cocaine, people would be right. getting high, yeah. wasted, jumping off the roof of buildings. I mean, and you go into these communities, poor communities of color, and you see for so much less. Um, young kids having their futures destroyed. And you have to step back and say, what is really going on here? Why are we treating these kids with such little care and concern, treating them as literally disposable? Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the civil rights lawyer and New Jim Crow author, Michelle Alexander. I mean, the statistics are, I mean, there's so many statistics, but like that more than in some American cities, more than half of working age African-American men have criminal records, which are going to be with them the rest of their lives. And oh, well, that one in four women, is this right? One in four American women has someone they love, some family member in prison. Yes. And one in two black women. One in two. Yeah. And, you know, I think I'm glad you raised that because in my own work, much of the emphasis has been on the experience of black men in the criminal justice system, in part because when I was working at the ACLU as a civil rights lawyer and we were waging campaigns against racial profiling and working on police brutality cases, so many of the complaints we received in the cases involved men, black men, who had been targeted by the police, stopped, frisked, their car searched, torn apart, or being brutalized by the police. And relatively little attention, you know, has been 
paid to the experience of black women and women in general in the criminal justice system, but also all the millions of women who are effectively doing time on the outside, struggling to survive as their loved ones cycle in and out of prison. Um, And there's a wonderful organization called Essie Justice Group, actually, that's just been founded that is designed to support women who have loved ones behind bars and, uh, you know, women who are struggling to take care of children, shuttle children back and forth to prison so that they can remain in contact with, you know, their parents um, or siblings behind bars and uh, women who often have to bear the economic as well as emotional responsibility of dealing with and supporting their loved ones when they return home. Mm-hmm. And there's so much trauma and yes. grief that goes unrecognized. There's a film that uh, my producer found, and I think you you helped create it. Or it just it's it's very short, but it's women. It's all kinds of women, all shapes and sizes and colors and ages of women who have somebody they love, sometimes multiple people they love, and it's so powerful. I mean, it's only a couple of minutes, but you know that word trauma is a uh, you know, it's a diagnosis, right? We kind of throw it around. Mm-hmm. But to see these women, these beautiful people, right, uh, the grief, really, it marks them. And also, though, you feel their strength. You feel, you see, like, what they are carrying. Yes. Yeah. And it's easy to kind of reduce the phenomenon of mass incarceration to numbers. Mm -hmm. You can crunch the numbers and show the racial disparities and all of that. But what gets lost is that human dimension, the suffering, the child who grows up visiting their father or mother in a prison waiting room. You know, the grief of having to count down the days to your loved one getting home and then knowing that when they return, they're not really free. Mm-hmm. that they will most likely be unable to find work, that they'll be barred from public housing. <laughs> they may be denied even food stamps for food if they've been convicted of a drug felony. That because of some mistake <laughs> um, you made or your loved one made, that there will be no forgiveness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there will be no opportunity to ever be welcomed back into your community, into society, as an equal member ever again. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I just am so thrilled and encouraged by the growing movement of formerly incarcerated people. Um, Ten years ago, this movement barely even existed, but today... Formerly incarcerated people and their families have been organizing nationwide, uh, inspired largely by an organization called All of Us or None. Formerly incarcerated people are organizing for their basic human rights, the right to work, the right to shelter, um, you know, the right to health care and um, drug treatment and basic human rights that we should be able to take for granted in a nation as wealthy as ours and uh, a nation that advertises ourselves to the rest of the world as the land of the free and a place of opportunity, uh, equality, and inclusion. It's very, I mean, there's real, I'd say there's real evil in this this story of mass incarceration. And, and yet it's something in me resists thinking that people were evil. But, you know, you have this quote at the very end of 
the new Jim Crow, you end with James Baldwin, and I think this is it. He says, you know, this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen. It is their innocence which constitutes the crime. Um, mm-hmm. Or just another, is a form of culpability. Um, I wanted to read you something that kept going through my head as I was reading you. And it was a, a conversation I had with Vincent Harding. Um, yes. Vincent Harding was this great uh, civil rights leader and elder and helped King develop the the philosophy of nonviolence. And he said to me, um, we were talking about he's, you know, democracy. And he said, for me, the question of democracy also opens up the question of what does it mean to be truly human? Democracy mm. is simply another way of speaking about that question. My own feeling, as I try to share again and again, is that when it comes to creating a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious democratic society, we are still a developing nation. <laughs> We've only been really mm. thinking about this for about half a century, he said. <laughs> you know, Vincent Harding was uh, such uh, an important figure in my life. Um, he passed too soon. Yeah. Um, but I think what he's pointing at there is kind of what I was trying to get at before, which is that this whole idea of every person um, mattering, this is a radical revolutionary project that we're (laughs) embarking upon. And um, it remains to be seen whether we can succeed in actually living up to, I think, what many of us would describe as our deepest aspirations. And... um, I have probably more hope (laughs) than might be warranted by the objective facts um, (laughs) that we will rise to the challenge of building what King called the beloved community. Yeah. I wanted Um, to ask you if that language is resonant for you. Like, what does that mean in the 21st century, the beloved community? Or do you see that if I asked you, if I asked you what gives you hope that you see happening, that that's even reasonable language, where would you point? Well, I would have to point to the extraordinary people that I've met over the last few years as I've been traveling around the country, people who have overcome the most unimaginable odds, people who were treated as disposable, who are locked up, locked out, left for dead, utterly forgotten, and who not only have managed to make a life for themselves, but have dedicated themselves to ensuring that no one will ever have to go through what they went through. Mm. Um, People who are committed to waking each other up and to turning towards each other with greater love, care, and concern. You know, as a civil rights lawyer, it's very common for advocates to get together and start talking about how do we persuade mainstream white swing voters to do this or that or to pass this law or that. And we often treat as progress um, shifting poll numbers among kind of the middle of the road voters. But I you know, have come to believe that what counts as progress and the source of my hope is when communities that have been treated as unworthy come to believe in themselves, um, begin to speak in their own voice, 
um, begin to organize and act as though their lives truly matter. And that's what we've seen just in the last couple of years. You've seen all over this nation young black folks, but young folks, you know, of all colors, waking up, standing up. And I really believe that we will look back and see that Ferguson was a turning point at a time when Michael Brown was shot down. And the young people of that community stood up and, you know, dared to say, you know, black lives matter. Our lives matter. We are not going to cooperate with this level of injustice anymore. To me, that's what gives me hope. And I, I think we we have an opportunity here to you know, really see some powerful cultural transformation. And I'm encouraged by the formerly incarcerated people who have begun to organize and find their voice, by the young people who are standing up and saying things that may be unpopular but need to be said, and by people of faith who are beginning to recognize their own culpability and remaining silent as a new system of racial and social control, purely punitive system was born on their watch. You can listen again and share this conversation with Michelle Alexander through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is supported in part by Penguin Press, the publishers of Becoming Wise, an inquiry into the mystery and art of living. Krista Tippett's book offers a grounded and fiercely hopeful vision of humanity for this century, of personal growth, renewed public life, and human spiritual evolution. Available now wherever books are sold. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the civil rights lawyer and new Jim Crow author, Michelle Alexander. She's one of the people who is waking us up to history we don't remember and structures most of us can't fathom intending to create. And she's doing so with a fierce hope and a belief in our collective capacity to rise to the challenge of the present. One way you've described, you know, use this word punitive a lot, and I think it's it's a word that needs time to sink in, right? For Americans to think of themselves as punitive. Um, but you know, one way you said it in a more spiritual language is that we'd become a nation of stone throwers. You know, as you said before, mm-hmm. set up with these systems in which forgiveness is not possible, redemption is not possible. There's no mercy. Um, and one thing you said is it's and. In moving away from that, it is not enough just to drop your own stone. <laughs> so mm-hmm. how would you start to talk um, just to people who care, you know, black, white, other, about first steps, you know, how to begin? Yeah, I think the first step is saying I'm willing to be awake, that I'm not going to tell myself the same old stories. Um, I am willing to wake up to our current racial reality, our current political and economic realities. I'm willing to wake up. And I'm also willing to acknowledge my own complicity 
in the systems, right? I think, you know, there's varying degrees of culpability and complicity, but we all, all of us, if you've been born in the United States and lived or lived in any significant period of time, and, um, you know, I may not have white privilege as an African-American woman, but I certainly have class privilege. I mean, yeah. And you tell a story, was it the night of the Obama inauguration when you, that yes. glorious night, right? And you walked And I out. saw the young man in the, the gutter. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Obama had just been elected the first time in 2008. And I walked yeah. out of the election night party and saw a black man in the gutter with his hands cuffed behind his back and wondered, what does Obama's election mean for him? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's easy to become overwhelmed and paralyzed. And I can say in my own life, one of the practices that I've come to embrace is, you know, the practice of just stillness and learning to stop <laughs> participating in the madness. Mm. And, uh, you know, even the act of slowing down and sitting still in a society and an economy that seems to reward constant movement and activity and communication is a bit of a, a, a challenging kind of radical act. It's a yeah. countercultural behavior. But <laughs> I think it's necessary for us to think about what contribution we want to make to our communities, to our families, and who we want to be and how we want to show up in this moment in time, in this moment in our racial history, our political history, our economic history, our gender history, all of it. And that takes some time and reflection. What What's um, distinctive, I think, about what you just said also is stillness as a, not just as a private discipline, but as a, as a, a public act, as part of um, mm-hmm. your public self. Yeah, I think it creates space where we can begin to imagine alternatives. Yeah. And I think our the media and all of our consumerism and the press of our daily lives can make it difficult to imagine alternatives and to commit ourselves to even small steps towards building a movement that might have some hope of being truly transformational. But all over the country right now, people are actually doing that work. Yeah. And that's why I'm encouraged. In faith communities, in reentry centers, in schools, on campuses, on street corners and barber shops today, yeah. people are um, asking questions that haven't been asked in a long time and saying, uh, we don't want to live in a prison state. We don't want a political system that is owned by a handful of billionaires. We don't want to be in a state of constant war, um, you know, in countries, you know, thousands of miles away. We would like to create a different reality in our communities, a different kind of political system. How are we going to go about building a movement that can birth something new? These conversations are happening, and I think they have far more potential than, you know, any of the polling and constant, uh, you know, political madness that's going on in our primary campaigns today. But something that you've said that I find very theological (laughs) is that we have to find ways as we navigate this. uh, I mean, as I think you're saying, as we reckon with it, we really reckon with what is at stake here, the big questions, that's language use, the big questions that 
we have to honor the criminality in each one of us. Yes. Yeah. Say some more. You know, I, I, you know, it. I really believe that this notion of us versus them, drawing lines and labeling one another, all turns on this notion that we can define who the bad guys are, and rest assured that they're not us. Mm-hmm. And. You know, so I, I believe if we're going to achieve the kind of shift in consciousness that is necessary, we are going to have to be able to say and mean, you know, we're all criminals. Uh, we have to acknowledge that all of us have done wrong in our lives. The criminals are not them over there. They're us. They're all of us. All of us have done wrong. All of us have broken the law at some point in our lives. You know, I often say, you know, Even if you haven't experimented with drugs, even if you didn't drink underage, if the worst thing you've done in your life is spend, you know, speed 10 miles over the speed limit on the freeway, well, you've put yourself and others at more risk of harm than someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their living room. But who do we shame and who do we blame? You know, I've spoken in churches and I'll say to a large congregation, you know, we're all sinners and everyone will nod their head. Oh, yes, we're all sinners. And then I'll say, and we're all criminals. And everyone just stares at me, you know, kind of (laughs) bug eyed, like, what? You're calling me a criminal? Right. And, you know, it was interesting. A young man came up to me after I spoke in one church and he said, isn't it interesting how eager we are all to admit that we violated God? God's law, but how reluctant we are to admit that we violated man's law. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is a way in which we kind of give lip service to this idea that we're all sinners or we all make mistakes, but uh, we have a difficult time acknowledging, oh, we're all criminals. Those people that have been shamed and blamed and stigmatized, actually, we are on so many levels not really better than them. Um, we may be luckier than them. <laughs> um, yeah. President Obama himself, you know, wrote in his memoir about doing quite a bit of drugs, marijuana and cocaine in his youth. Mm-hmm. And if circumstances had been different for him, if he hadn't been raised by white grandparents in Hawaii, if he had been raised in the hood, yeah. chances are very good. He would have been stopped, searched, caught. And far from being president of the United States today, he might not even have the right to vote, depending on what state he lived in. <laughs> yeah, that's um, very starkly. Yeah. I yeah. will say, I believe that language is so important. And I do, I am so intrigued by how, you know, it's still fragile, but how I hear this language of mercy and redemption, you know, words like that, kind of entering our public sphere. Yeah, it's funny because I just recently read a quote by James Baldwin, and I wish I had it memorized perfectly. I don't. But it had something to do with along the lines of, you think that I need to be forgiven, but it's you who must be forgiven. Or I can't remember exactly the language, but it was this idea that, you know, we look at those who've been labeled criminals and we imagine that they're the ones who ought to be forgiven. And when in fact, we are the ones who may have committed the greater crime, 
right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the young man who's caught with some weed in his pocket, he's hustling to make some money on the side to buy some shoes or help his mama pay the rent. Uh, how serious of a crime is that compared to the crime we commit by locking him in a literal cage, treating him worse than we would treat many animals, and then stripping him of all his civil and human rights upon release? Whose crime really Mm. is in need of forgiveness? And uh, I think all of the shaming and blaming that we've been doing in recent decades of the poorest (laughs) and often the darkest among us, Mm. I think really says more about ourselves than it does about them. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with civil rights lawyer and new Jim Crow author, Michelle Alexander. I think you're really eloquent about, even for yourself, um, I would say one big theme, really, that we've been talking about this whole time that you write about is the conversations we we don't know how to have, we're just grasping to have culturally and and I find it very moving when you talk about the conversations it's almost impossible for you to have as you are out there. And um, one of them you wrote about in November of 2014 in the New York Times. That I think the title of this article or the subtitle was, It's Much Easier Telling the Truth About Race and Justice in America to Strangers Than to My Son, mm-hmm. who will mm-hmm. soon be forced to live it. And that balance that you're walking as a mother of a black son of telling him the truth and doing what every mother wants to do, which is help your child feel safe and comfort them. This was um, after Ferguson, right? After Michael Brown's shooting. Yes. Yeah. You know, it is a painful thing for, you know, any parent, particularly black parents, to have to tell their children, um, no, actually, you cannot trust the police. And when I had to tell my son that I knew that the officer who killed Michael Brown would not be indicted. and right, that Because children have I such knew. a sense of justice, right? And he was asking you, he's 10 yes. and he wants you to tell him that there will yes. be a trial. Yes. He was saying, how can there not be a trial? At least he'll go to trial, right? Mm-hmm. Of course there'll be a trial. And you're a lawyer. How could there not be a trial? Yeah. You know, and even before the grand jury came back, I knew there's no way they're going to indict this officer. And I knew because I knew how rare it is that officers ever get indicted for shooting unarmed black men. And to tell him that because he's he deserves the truth. Yeah. I owe him the truth. But also to see how it shatters him and to know that he isn't ever going to have the luxury of uh, imagining that, you know, a police officer pulls up behind him in a car, that he will be afforded the same presumptions of innocence that he might be afforded if he were white. And, uh, you know, I had an experience with my son when he was very young. Uh, gosh, he must have been 
five, six, I'm not sure, where he had been playing outside with water guns. And it was in the middle of the summer, and I was having to run a bunch of errands, and I told all the kids to jump in the car. We we're going to go to the mall. I have to get a gift uh, for someone. And unbeknownst to me, he brings his water gun with him in the car and get to the store. We jump out or crossing the street, and a police car drives by. And as the car drives by, my son whips out his little water gun, which I didn't realize he had it, and starts pointing the gun at the police vehicle and saying, bang, bang, cops and robbers. He's laughing hysterically. And the fear and rage that welled up in me as mm. I practically tackled my son on the sidewalk and telling him, you cannot do that. Mm. And it was it was a knowingness that he wouldn't just be a little boy <laughs> playing with a water gun, pointing at a police officer, but he would be a black boy yeah. pointing what might well be imagined to be a gun at a police officer that, you know, shook me to my core. And when Tamir Rice was killed, my son came home and said, I saw a picture of a boy who looks just like me, who mm. was killed by the police. And I said, yeah, he does look just like you. And that's why I tackled you on the street. Oh. You also tell a story about um, being confronted by a white woman whose son is in prison, who's caught up also in this, this same cycle which had a sense of racial disorder at its origins, but hasn't stopped there. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. Um, a couple of years ago, I gave a talk, and afterwards during the Q&A period, a white woman approached the microphone, and she said, I hear you talking about all of the pain and suffering experienced by African Americans in the war on drugs and... I hear you and I believe you, but I, you know, have a child who has been ensnared by the drug war and they're suffering too. Yeah. You know, what about him? And, you know, I had to say in all honesty, there are millions of white folks who are serving longer sentences than they otherwise would have are having their cars or homes forfeited as a result of, you know, federal drug forfeiture laws, who are getting prison sentences rather than drug treatment yeah. because of this war mentality um, that overtook the nation when we imagined collectively that drug offenders were black and brown. And... Um, not extending drug treatment on demand, not, you know, rushing to these neighborhoods with care and concern. How can we help uh, these folks who are living in these communities where work has disappeared due to factories closing down and moving overseas and where there's despair and hopelessness and rising drug addiction? How can we go in and help yeah. these communities? No, instead they declared a war yeah. on those people. Yeah. And the mandatory minimum sentences and the harsh drug laws and the three strikes laws and the scaling back of drug treatment and all of that um, has impacted people of all colors. Right. And it's that, that story of suffering 
that human wreckage, that human drama that somehow we manage not to incorporate into our narrative, also, or obviously not our policies. And I feel like, you know, that's what you've, that's the story you're kind of shining a light on. And it's it's so important. Um, I just wonder how, as you, you've talked about, you know, that you at some point developed an obsession with this, the founding paradox of America that's now so full-blown. Um, how do you think this shapes, I would almost say this calling of yours, this knowledge, but also this calling, you know, how do you think it shapes your presence, like in minute ways in the course of your days? Like, what do you see that you didn't see before? How do you move through the world differently? And I realize that's I a huge know. question, so maybe just talk about yeah. yesterday or today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, I talk a little bit at the beginning of the book that once my own eyes were opened, there was no way I could unsee. There was no way that I could be blind anymore to, you know, what I had been in denial about for so long. And, you know, I think on many levels there are days when I think, oh, life might have been easier <laughs> if <laughs> I'd never woken up. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um And I think that's one of the reasons why many of us stay asleep, you know, because we sense that if we really kind of woke up to the full reality and opened ourselves to seeing and witnessing and um, being present for the unnecessary suffering that exists and that we're complicit with, that, you know, our life won't be as easy. More might be required of us. And we're having a hard enough time making it through the day as it is. Um, But I have to say that kind of waking up and seeing things as they are has also led me to just the most rewarding relationships and work that I could imagine. And I'm grateful <laughs> to to be awake and consciously um, committed to trying to birth a, a new America and no longer kind of lost in this fantasy, you know, this American dream world that if you just get the two-car garage and keep plodding along this path that somehow we're going to make it to mm-hmm. where we all want to go. And so... Um, you know, I, I have to say that I'm I'm grateful. My the relationships that I now have and the work that I'm now involved in is much more rich mm-hmm. and meaningful than um, the path that I had been on before. And how do you think all of this has shaped, evolved your sense of you know what it means to be human? You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about this notion of revolutionary love and what that means. And it's something that I spoke with Vincent Harding quite a bit about. And I think for me, what it means to be fully human is to open ourselves to fully loving one another in an unsentimental way, I'm not talking about the romantic love or the idealized version of love, but that the simple act of caring for one another and being aware of our connectedness 
as human beings, and also the reality of our suffering and the reality that we make a lot of mistakes and we struggle and we fail. That's all part of being human. We suffer, we love, we struggle, we fail, and then we love again. And I think um, trying not to imagine that we're anything uh, more or less than that as human beings struggling to love and find our way, making mistakes, but still uh, yearning for a deeper connection and a sense of purpose in our lives is what being human is all about. Now, of course, so many people, not just in the United States, but around the world, are struggling on a daily basis just to survive. Yeah. But even among those folks, what I have found is that there's love to be found, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's joy there. Um, there's suffering. There's redemption. All of it. And that's what it means to be human. And uh, if we're going to evolve (laughs) spiritually, morally, as human beings, we're going to lean in to caring more and loving more for one another and honoring our connectedness and our oneness and resist that impulse, that fear-driven impulse to divide and label and react with punitiveness um, rather than care and concern. Michelle Alexander is an associate professor of law at the Moritz College of Law and the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University. Her book is The New Jim Crow. Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. At onbeing.org, you can listen to this show again and also find my full, unedited conversation with Michelle Alexander. We release the unedited interview for every show. This one is especially rich with powerful and insightful moments we just couldn't fit into the produced episode. Find our entire archive at onbeing.org or by subscribing to our podcast. On Being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Terrell, Annie Parsons, Marie Sambalay, Tess Montgomery, Asil Zaran, Bethany Klecker, and Selena Carlson. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build a spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. And the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.